Year, almost. Well, Happy New Year's Eve anyways. Um, I hope that uh, you use today as a time of reflection over this past year of God's faithfulness and goodness to you. And as you anticipate more of the same, because our God doesn't change in this coming year. Um, this morning, we're going to be finishing up our series on delighting in Christ. Uh, and then next week, we're going to jump right into our next series on worship. So we're going to look at worship in uh, the heart of each individual believer, as well as corporate worship and why we do what we do in the way that we do it. Um, there's thought to all of that. So I uh, want to help uh, train and equip you to understand uh, the ins and outs of, of every aspect of church life. So uh, worship is a very central and key uh, aspect of that. It's, and you could say worship is everything that we do as a Christian. Um, so we'll, I look forward to getting into that topic. It's a topic that's very dear to my own uh, heart through the years. But this morning we're looking at uh, the exaltation of Christ and taking great delight in his exaltation. So let me go to the Lord in prayer, if you would join me, please. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we ask, Lord, for your uh, enablement to take great delight in your Son. Lord, our flesh within us uh, does not find him delightful. Lord, it fights against those things. Lord, but you have given us a new heart. We are new creatures. And so we are, you have given us the capacity to delight in Christ. Uh, uh, something that no one else can do but the redeemed. Uh, and so, Lord, help us to enjoy what, this gift that you've given us. This new heart that can find great uh, satisfaction in our beloved, our beloved Savior. We pray, Lord, that you would help us this morning to do just that. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so his exaltation. We want to take great delight as Christians in the exaltation of Christ. And when I speak of his exaltation, uh, it's a little bit specific of uh, his resurrection and ascension and the exaltation that's connected to that. Uh, his position now as the risen Lord of the church. John Owen says, uh, he, he asks a question, Is our beloved lost, who for our sakes was upon the earth, poor and persecuted, reviled and killed? Yes, is he lost? What happened to him? He says, no, no, he is not lost. He was dead, but he is alive. And lo, he lives forever and ever and has the keys of hell and of death. That is the position of Jesus Christ. That's, that is his exalted state, risen unto uh, life forever and ever. And having all authority in heaven and on earth, having the keys of, of hell and of death, having all authority, all, he's been given the name above every name. So we're going to see this morning how that's so. But again, just to kind of set the table, 
Uh, Revelation 1, verse 17 and 18. This is the vision of Jesus Christ given to John, the Apostle John. And that first sight, the first vision was of himself, of Christ himself in, in his exalted state. And John relays what he saw and he says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not fear, I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. So Christ, in his exalted state, the right response of man is to fall at his feet as a dead man. And we can go through the description of Christ in that first chapter of Revelation, but we won't do that this morning. Uh, but uh, when we see, if, we, if you were to see Christ in his exalted state, you would do just the same. You would fall on your face as a dead man. Uh, it would be uh, completely overwhelming for you to take in. His glory is so immense and so uh, unfathomable that you would uh, faint, whether he's talking about falling on his face and fainting or uh, out of sheer fear of the glory of this one that stands before him, John fell at his feet as a sign of worship and reverence and humiliation of his own self. But I love Christ's response where he placed his right hand upon John and says, do not fear. You know, we've heard through the Old Testament and even into the New Testament, especially when angels appear to men, they have the, a similar response. And their, their answer to uh, the fear of men is do not fear. And they always bring glad tidings, right? We think of, of the angels appearing to the, the shepherds uh, in, in the announcement of Jesus Christ, the birth of Jesus Christ. Uh, or uh, angels uh, coming to uh, Mary uh, to announce uh, the birth of Christ, the conception. And uh, all of these people coming face to face with and these angelic beings would fear and the angels would say, do not fear. And we have the same answer here from the lips of Christ himself, do not fear. And, but he doesn't point to some other reason not to fear, but rather the reason for for uh, John and for us to not fear is found in Jesus Christ himself. And he reveals himself to John here. Uh, I am the first and the last, the living one. Uh, I was dead and behold, I am alive forever and ever. And I have the keys of death and Hades. The, this exalted state, we're going we're gonna to unpack this morning. The first thing that we see is that he is exalted by the Father. Christ is exalted by the Father. God the Father has exalted God the Son by the ministry of God the Holy Spirit, you could even say as well. 
Well, how has a father exalted Christ? Uh, First of all, he is made king. You might think, well, I thought the Son of God has always been king. Well, that's true in a sense. I mean, Isaiah 6 shows us that uh, he, the, that the, the pre-incarnate Christ, uh, the Son of God, before uh, Bethlehem, before uh, the manger, the pre-incarnate Christ was exalted and he was on a throne. Uh, but here, he is made king as the God-man. He's made king as the God-man. Uh, Acts 2, 36 says, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Notice that it is uh, that God, and that's God the Father, has made him both Lord and Christ. Uh, the idea there is that uh, the Father has, has seen it fit that the title Lord, that is ruler, ruler or king, reigning one, and Christ, that is Messiah, the anointed one, and the, the core of the messianic promise is the anointed king of Israel. So both Lord and Christ, both ruler, master, and Lord, and, and, and also anointed king over the people of God as Christ or Messiah. God has seen fit to place that role and that position of king uh, and Lord uh, upon Jesus. So the Father has, has orchestrated history and redemption in such a way that the Son would bear the honor of this title, Lord and Christ. Psalm 2.6, uh, in answer to the nations that rage, in, in, in an answer to uh, a rebellious uh, humanity, uh, it says in Psalm 2 that uh, God from the heavens scoffs at the Feudal efforts and and rebellion of men, and he points to um, the Lord, because David says, "The Lord said to my Lord," or Yahweh said to my Lord. So Yahweh says to my Lord, uh, who is Christ. The Father says, "But as for me, you know, you you can have all your rebelling and your scoffing against me and your rejection against me." But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. So the point is, uh, the father says, you know, you have all your kings, your rulers, your endeavors, your governments. But for me, I have a king. And uh, this is great comfort to us, right? Um, I've just been reflecting uh, how... uh, there's all sorts of political positions, right, out there. And, uh, and whoever you're for or you're against, and nowadays it's you're more against a certain person than you are for the person that you actually end up voting for, uh, especially in presidential campaigns. Um, but whether it's in America or in Africa or in Europe or wherever you want to go, um, you have all of these rulers, all of these leaders, all of these governments. And 
for thousands and thousands of years, we have never as a human race accomplished peace, right? We have never fully and finally experienced uh, harmony between nations, harmony even within nations. And this, why is that? Well, one, it's because of our sinful nature. We're unable to accomplish peace because we are not at peace with God, first of all. But also because I would argue that that ability and that accomplishment of peace, God in his sovereignty is reserving that for his son. There will come a time when, when Christ will reign and there will be peace. And in the culmination of history, he will be exalted because he will be the only king in all of human history that will be able to accomplish that peace. And that is, uh, you could say, that's, that's kind of what's behind the scoffing of the Father and the answer of the Father in this verse. You have all your kings, you've tried all your different ways, all your different forms of government, you've, you've tried to accomplish peace, but you have been unable. Right? Whether it's dictatorship or communism or the democratic system, no matter what flaws or benefits of any of those you have, even in a democratic system, we can't accomplish peace. But under the government and the rule of Christ, there will be peace. And, he will, and the people of God will experience that peace. You and I will experience that peace, that harmony, finally. And he'll get glory for that. He'll get glory for that in a distinct way. So, our beloved Savior is made Lord and ruler over all things. God sets him as king on his holy Hill of Zion, Owen says. Uh, secondly, the Father exalts the Son, uh, he, uh, and, Christ, and Christ is exalted by the Father in that He is crowned. He is crowned. It's a, a, kind of a different way of saying the same thing, but coming from it, coming at it from another angle. Uh, in Hebrews, chapter two, verse seven through nine. Uh, it says, you have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now... We do not yet see all things subjected to him. But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. So there, there's so much there in, in this. I, I just want to pick out this this um, this phrase he is crowned with glory and honor and th there's a reason why he's crowned 
It's because of the suffering and death. Right? So this is why we say, yes, in Isaiah 6, the pre-incarnate Christ, the eternal Son of God, has always been king. He's always been crowned. But there's a special uh, kingliness, there's a special role, there's a, and there's a special crowning with a special glory and a special honor that is the result of, not of his eternal deity, but of his incarnation and in his life, death, burial, and resurrection. Because of his accomplishment of our redemption, the suffering of death here described, because of that, there is, a, there is a specific crowning with a specific glory and honor that he was not crowned with before he became man. Does that make sense? There is a special glory and honor that, um, that the Son of God did not possess yet. Uh, and that sounds heretical to say. But there was a, there's a special uh, uh, glorification of the pre-incarnate Son that he did not experience yet because he had not gone through and accomplished this work of redemption. And, but when he comes out the other side, when he was buried, raised, and ascended, now the Father has crowned him with uh, this glory and honor, having suffered death. Now there is a special, uh, you could say, um, you could even say that there's a special recrowning of Christ. Because when he became man, he did not lay aside any of his deity. He was, he was still truly and fully God in that body. But he had to lay aside, as it were, the, the crown of his deity, you could, the, the, the manifestation, the, the uh, exercise of his deity. He had to lay that aside, the, the, the manifestation and, and, and the uh, worship, that, uh, that, that Isaiah 6 glory. He had to lay that aside, it says in Philippians 2. He had to empty himself of that, retaining all of his deity, but, but now he assumes that back up. He, 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 he picks that back up. And the way that's described, that, that picking back up of that manifestation of all of his glory that he had but, but, but laid aside is this crowning. That's the context of this phrase. Remember, in verse 7, you have laid him aside. Or excuse me, you have made him a little, uh, for you made him a little while lower than the angels. And then you crowned him with glory and honor and have appointed him over the work of your hands. So having been made a little while lower than the angels, that is having become man, after that, then you have crowned then the crowning with glory and honor. So this has always been the plan. I mean, this, you can tell this from the all caps. This is, this is an Old Testament reference. Now, 
Christ has been crowned with honor, dignity, glory. And this was only after having first been made a little lower than the angels in his incarnation and death. He had to go through that in order to be crowned in this way. And it's because he went through that that the Father says, There's, there, there is none like you. Uh, you deserve all glory and all honor. Right? Because the Father has uh, sent his Son on this mission of redemption. And the Son comes back to the Father and says, Father, I have accomplished what you have sent me to do. I have purchased a people. And the Father says, I crown you with all glory and honor, my son. Uh, so he is exalted by the Father. Now, he is exalted not only by the Father, but secondly, this morning, he is exalted as king. He is exalted as king. Now, a lot of this is, I mean, the whole theme of this, his exaltation, is this kingly nature. Uh, his royal uh, position as king. But we're, we're picking this apart and, and dissecting in what ways and how is he made king and, and all of this. So that we can understand this better. So he is exalted as king and uh, so specifically he is made king of all. Made king of all. Uh, again, from Hebrews 2 that we just looked at, verse 8, right there in the middle, it says, You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in, in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. So it, it can get confusing because he's saying the same thing different ways and saying the same thing in a negative way. So the main thing is you have put all things in subjection under his feet. Now this is a prophecy, right? And this, this you is the father. And the his, that is the son. So the father has put all things in subjection under the son's feet. And then the next phrase, in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. So, again, the him, that's the son. So, in subjecting all things to the son, he, that is the father, the father uh, left nothing that is not subject to him, the son. So, it, is the, it was the father's will and the father's uh, uh, divine authority uh, in his authority as father he, he subjects all things to his son and says you rule and you judge all things and having placed all things under the subjection and under the feet of the son he says there if, if, if the Father has put everything there, there's nothing left. 
And we know from Romans, I believe chapter, I believe chapter, the end of chapter 12, forgive me if I'm wrong, uh, it, it says the same truth as here, but it also says that uh, the only thing or person that's not subject to Christ is the Father. And the Father places all things in subjection to the Son under his authority as king. And what, what happens is we're included in that. We are subject to the Son. And so we give rightful glory and, and praise and honor to the, to, to the Son as our ruler. And that redounds to the glory of the Father. And uh, the, the Son, what he does is he, he, he yields that subjection to, back to the Father. And he... he, and he he redounds that glory, that worship back to the Father. So, uh, all things. The main thing that, that, that I want to get from here is all things. All things are in subjection. Again, for in subjecting all things to him. And he even says it in a negative way. He left nothing that is not subject to him. Right? So, there's nothing outside of the Father. There's nothing that isn't under the rule or under the foot, under, under the, the authority and reign of Christ. Uh, but the trouble is what we see, right? And that's what he gets at, at, at the end here. But, right, that's true, but there, that's the contrast, remember? That's... All of this is true. Everything is under subjection to, his, to, to Christ, but it doesn't look like it, right? right? But we do not yet see all things subjected to him. doesn't mean that it's not true, right? Just because it looks like um, Hamas isn't under the, the, the foot of Christ or in subjection to Christ doesn't mean that they're not. Right? They are subject to him. He does rule over them. Even though it doesn't look like it. Uh, but even in this, even in the phrasing, uh, right now, it doesn't look like they're in subjection to his feet. But that is it, that reality of it not looking like they're subject to him. Uh, that's just a temporary reality. It, it, they do not yet, we do not yet see all things subjected to him. There, that means that there is coming a time when we will see. It will be manifest. It will be shown and exercised uh, in real time, you could say, or exercised in, in, in this earth. It will be shown and known to all that all things are subjected to the reign and the rule of Christ. And we take great comfort and hope in that. So that difficult boss, right? That unruly person in your life, that conflict, uh, that, if the, that cancer, Right? It doesn't seem like these things are in subjection to his, to his rule. 
But just because it doesn't look like it doesn't make it uh, not a reality. It's just we don't see it yet. But you will see his reign and his rule one day. It's just a matter of time. Uh, Secondly, under this point, he has authority over all creation. He has authority over all creation. Uh, Matthew 28, 18. We're we're getting more specific, right? Because we went from all things to, well, all creation. Uh, Matthew 28, 18. Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. That is, in every realm, heaven or earth, I have authority. And it's all authority. It's not some, it, it is complete rule. Complete authority. That, that means that he does whatever he wants. And, he, and whatever happens goes by him first, right? You could say. Or the reality is whatever happens is the result of his decree. That's, that's authority. That's all authority. That's complete authority. And this power, this rule, this authority is in every realm, you could say, in heaven and on earth. That's, that's every realm. And, and the idea is everywhere in between, right? So, you know, there's all this wonder about um, how big is our universe? And if, you fly, if, you, if you're able to fly through a black, a black hole, would it, would it spit you out in another universe and then go through a black hole in that universe and, you, and it spits you out in another universe? And how many endless universes are there? And there's all this speculation. And, 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 well, first of all, the heavens declare the glory of God, right? So the vastness of it is to prove the glory of God, uh, not to you know, venture to find life or something, something along those lines. But, even, but, but no matter what is out there, Christ says, wherever you go, however far you fly, no matter what black hole you go through and where, whatever, you know, galaxy you find yourself in, I'm, a, I'm ruler there as well. And that just speaks to his glory. Just, just think of the... the what is it, the, the, the telescope that they just launched, uh, the name escapes me, uh, but that telescope that was launched in the past year and is able to see farther and more clearly into the galaxies than we ever were in history, even way out there, it, it, Christ reigns. And that's just, uh, man, that's just glorious, isn't it? That you can take those and, and the, you know, the atheist looks at those pictures and, and says, you know, has all of his responses. But the believer looks at those images and says, even there God reigns. Even there my king rules and exercises authority. How much more here in the life of his people? Uh, he has authority also over all men. Authority over all men. 
John 17, verse 1 and 2. Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. So you see the, the order there, right? When we glorify the Son, his, that glory redounds uh, to the Father. But you can see the, the hour has come, right? So he's talking about his death. And he goes on, Even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. So, my goodness. Um, Christ, faced with the hour of his death, that's the, the hour that has come. That hour is the hour of the glory of Christ. And this is what's accomplished. And, 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 and the world would scoff at this because this is the hour of the crucifixion of Jesus of Nazareth. To many of those looking on at, you know, and, and, and seeing Jesus there on the cross, what did they do? What, what did many of the onlookers do to Jesus as he hung there? They mocked him. They wagged their heads at him, right? What a shame, right? Oh, you know, you, you could have been something. You, you could have proven yourself. Prove yourself now. You're not proving anything up there. You're actually you're proving that everything that you said is is just is just foolishness. We should have never listened to you. We see you for who you really are. Your true colors are coming out now, Jesus. There on that cross, you're you're such a disgrace. That was the the estimation of all of those that were there at the foot of the cross on that day. But yet we understand that that hour was the hour of the glory. Of Christ, there is uh, there is. It's been said that on the cross we see the glory of God in fullest display. Though we see it veiled behind a, a bleeding body of Christ, we we do see. All of the attributes of God there on the cross being exercised. We see his authority over creation. As creator, we see his omnipotence. We see his, his all-knowing uh, capacity. We see his great wisdom being carried out. We see his love and mercy and, and his patience being carried out. We see his wrath and his justice and his righteousness being carried out there on the cross. Every attribute of, of God that you want to go through in a systematic theology is, is found there in the cross in one way or another. And so that hour of the cross is an hour of glory. And, and in receiving glory there, uh, as our suffering Savior, that glory redounds to the Father, so that the Son may glorify you. And then he says, even as you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, so the Father gave the Son authority over all flesh. 
And that's really why we're here in this verse right now. He has authority over all men. But notice, what does he do? What does the Son of God do with this authority over all humanity? He graciously gives life to some. Wow. To, to those particular uh, ones that are the, uh, the receivers of the grace of God, to those ones whom God has set apart from eternity past for his love and his redemption and his forgiveness and reconciliation for the elect of God, to all whom you have given, all that the Father has given. So, so picture this. The Father gives the Son authority, carte, carte blanche, right, over all humanity. But he says, here are my people. And I want you to die for them. I want you to purchase them and to, uh, and to receive my wrath in their place. And through your death, give them eternal life. So the Son, with all authority over all flesh, says, yes, Father, I give these eternal life. So how does he exercise his power over all flesh? He graciously gives life to his elect. That is how, that is the glory that he exercises his power in. In that he gives eternal life to his people. Uh, what is this? Fourth, he is victorious over his enemies. My goodness. I gotta I gotta get going here. He is victorious over his enemies. John Owen says, Christ is lovely and glorious in the vengeance that he takes and will finally execute upon the stubborn enemies of himself and his people. This may not be, uh, this is definitely not a seeker-sensitive message, <laughs> right? The message, and, but this is the message, and this is the message that Christ gave. Come now and kiss the Son, right? Do homage to the Son, lest what? He be angry and you perish in the way. Lest you experience his wrath. So it's grace now or wrath later. And the choice is yours, Jesus says. But he gets glory. Just, in, just as he gets glory and is exalted in saving us and redeeming us, he does get glory. He is exalted when he carries out his vengeance. We need to, uh, we need to believe that. We need to anticipate that even. Psalm 45, verse 3 through 5 Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and in your majesty. 
and in your majesty ride on victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome things. Your arrows are sharp. The peoples fall under you. Your arrows are in the heart of the king's enemies. So here we see uh, this call to the, to the Messiah. This call to, to, we understand as Jesus Christ, to gird his thor- sword on his thigh, to just to uh, exercise judgment over his enemies. In the name of, it says, truth, meekness, and righteousness. In the name of everything that's good, there must be judgment. There must be vengeance from God. Uh, Isaiah 63, verse 2 through 4. Just, just listen to the, the, the picture here that's being described. Why, why is your clothing red? And your garments like the one who treads in the wine press? The answer, I have trodden the wine trough alone. And from the peoples there was no man with me. I also trod them in my anger. And trampled them under, or trampled them in my wrath. And their lifeblood is sprinkled on my garments. And I stained all my clothes For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption has come. This this is a picture of the end, when Christ is victorious over all his enemies. His garments will be stained with blood. And this time, not the blood of his own self, but the blood of his enemies. And he will execute justice and judgment against all of the enemies of God and the enemies of his people. So those who persecute the church, those who violently kill Christians all across the globe, even to today, those who mistreat you, Christian, because you are a believer. Those who have rejected you and rejected your Savior and scoff at you, God will carry out justice. And Owen says, Oh, how glorious is he in his authority, in his authority over his enemies. In this world, he terrifies, frightens, awes, convinces, bruises their hearts and consciences, stains all his vesture with their blood, fills the earth with their carcasses, and at last will gather them all together, beast, false prophet, nations, etc., and cast them into that lake that burns with fire and brimstone. There is coming a day when all will be made right. Every wrong will be avenged. You know, all of those mass murderers and serial killers, all of those who sinned and it seemed like they just prospered in their sin in this world and just died uh, in their prosperity and have been cast into eternal hell. 
all of those who have rejected God and his people and mistreated. God says, there's coming a day. Vengeance will be mine, says the Lord. And we can take great comfort in that. And that's what frees up the Christian. I'm I'm running out of time, but that's okay. That's what frees up the Christian to forgive, right? Or at least to take the stance of forgiveness. Maybe that person hasn't asked for forgiveness from you. You are able to take a to at least have a heart of forgiveness. The transaction may never happen and the relationship may be strained forever. But you can at least not carry bitterness and have a heart a mindset of forgiveness towards that person. How? Well, because look, the the wages of sin is death, right? somebody has to pay for sin. So the question is, who's going to pay? If you withhold forgiveness, or if, or, or if you don't pursue a heart of, or an attitude of forgiveness towards somebody that sinned against you, the person that's going to pay is you. And you're going to carry that bitterness, carry that resentment, and you're going to just be a bitter old person, Right? And it will just fester and, and ruin you from the inside out. But if you can trust that I don't have to pay for this, either Christ has paid for it on the cross or they're going to pay for it perfectly and fully or, or they're going to pay for it rightly uh, in the judgment of God. If I can trust both of those payments whether it's already been paid on the cross or it will be paid in the justice of God, I am free now to just, you know what? I, I, I have a heart of forgiveness towards you. I'm not going to hold that against you. I'm not going to pay for it. Either you're going to pay for it or Christ has. One or the other. And I can be free of that. I don't, I don't have to pay for your sin. Even through my bitterness and my resentment. I don't, I don't need to pay that price. And, and, and Christian, God doesn't want you to pay that. He doesn't expect that of you. You have no business carrying that sin around, carrying that debt around. You, you cast that upon God and His sovereignty. And you can take great comfort that this will happen. And it will be full and a thorough payment that no drop of guilt will be left un, uh, untouched in the justice of God. All right. Um, next, he rules his people. He rules his people. Uh, a couple of verses. Hebrews 1.8. Of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever. And ever, and the scepter of uprightness is a scepter of your kingdom. So we're now we're, we're looking at his Christ's rule over his people, his kingdom. That is the people of God, and it says the scepter of right of uprightness or righteousness is a scepter of your kingdom. Uh, Micah five four says he will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of Yahweh, in the majesty of the name of Yahweh his God. And they will remain because at that time he will be great to the ends of the earth. So, 
So he stands and shepherds his flock, and in the previous verse he has a scepter, right? So those things are speaking about how, how he rules and the actual exercise of his, of his kingship over his people, the decrees and, and, and the operation of Jesus in the life of his people. That's what we're talking about here. He rules and reigns with his scepter, and he rules well. That's the point of these two verses. He rules. When he rules us, he rules very well. It's a good rule. He rules in the power of God. And he, he, again, uh, Hebrews 1.8, it's, it's a scepter of uprightness. So he never does anything in his, in his rule over your life, Christian. He never does anything that is corrupt or twisted or manipulative or anything of that nature. It's always good. It's always upright. It's always just the right thing. And then Micah 5, 4. What does he do with this rule and with shepherding us and with strength and, and with majesty? Uh, the promise is they will remain. So what does he do with his rule? He, he ensures our safety until the end. That's what's being said there. As he rules his people, he rules us well. And under his reign, under his or and within his kingdom, Christian, you can be sure that your king will ensure your safety until the end. You will not be lost. Owen says, Christ is lovely in the glory and majesty with which he is crowned. Today he is sitting at the right hand of the majesty on high, where, though he is terrible to his enemies, Yet he is full of mercy, love, and compassion towards his, his beloved ones. Um, he also says, He is glorious in his way of rule and the administration of his kingdom. This is how he rules your life, Christian. Full of sweetness, efficacy, power, serenity, holiness, righteousness, and grace, that's how he rules you. He doesn't rule you with a heavy hand. If you think his rule is, is a heavy hand, then, then you don't know my king. And, and you're doing this wrong. You're placing things upon your life that, that are, ought not be there. His rule is, is sweet and powerful. There is a serenity to it. There is a, there is a, there's a sweet peace about it. And though your life is just maybe chaotic in the moment, when it's all said and done, and, and, and when you really get down to it, you can be at peace in your soul, no matter what's happening. Uh, and lastly, we're out of time, but uh, he is exalted to the utmost. So I'll just give you a few verses, and then we'll close. He is exalted to the utmost. The first point is he is exalted in his accomplishment. Exalted in his accomplishment. And we got this from Philippians 2, verse 8 and 9. I mentioned this before. I won't spend time here. Um, speaking of his humiliation or his incarnation, found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Um, therefore, Therefore, because of his 
humility and obedience to the Father and death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. So he is exalted in his accomplishment. Because nobody else has done this. That's the point, right? So nobody else can be exalted this way because nobody else has accomplished what Christ has accomplished. Uh, Secondly, he is exalted in his position. Exalted in his position. Namely, that he is at the right hand of God. Hebrews 1.3 says, He is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power, who, having accomplished cleansing for our sins, there, there's that bringing in uh, what he's done, having accomplished cleansing for our sin, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So he sat down, signifying that his accomplishment is full, his, his cleansing for our sin was fully and finally accomplished. But notice where he sat down, at the right hand of the majesty on high. Owen points out, Christ is exalted to the right hand of God. That is the highest exaltation possible. There's no other position that's higher than the right hand of the Father. And that is where Christ is seated. He is in full possession of a kingdom over the whole creation. Nobody else has that position. And lastly, he is exalted in his name. Exalted in his name. Uh, Revelation 19.16. He he has uh, the name written uh, on his garment and on his thigh. King of kings and Lord of lords. That's his name. King of kings and Lord of lords. And Philippians 2 gets to the same point. God has highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And uh, that every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. That's his name. G- the Lord Jesus Christ. He is Lord. Nobody else has that title. Nobody else has that name. He is given a name which is above every other Name. So, Christian, uh, as we close, this be reminded: this is the beloved of the church, its head, its husband. This is he with whom we have communion. Uh, again, this this series has come from uh, a section in John Owen's book, Communion with God. I would commend that to you. There's a Banner of Truth, I believe, has a booklet, a condensed and modernized booklet on of this, and it's way easier to read than the original. And it's it's just such a an encouraging book to read through. But Owen reminds us, this is the one with whom you have communion. This is the beloved of your soul. And uh, Owen closes the section asking this, what shall I say? There is no end of his excellencies and desirableness. He is altogether lovely. Lovely.
Trust that you see the loveliness of Christ, the desirableness of Christ, his excellencies. I hope that you have gotten a taste of the delight that is available to you in Christ and that your taste buds would, as it were, be reoriented, that you would crave more of him as a result of this series. Um, Again, uh, next week we're going to be beginning our series on worship, so it should be just a really wonderful time looking at all the ways that we worship this one. Let me close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for sending this one, this glorious one, uh, to die in our place, Lord, to be our champion and our redeemer. Lord Jesus, we exalt you and we worship you. There's no one like you. We praise you. We, we bestow upon you glory that is only deserving of you. Lord, help us to uh, take greater delight in you. Forgive us for finding our enjoyment and our thrills in other things. Lord, help us to reorient our hearts and our affections towards you. May we find great pleasure and delight in you, Lord Jesus, especially this new year as we embark on another year. May we be committed to just loving you more and, and finding more joy and satisfaction in you. Oh, Lord, may that be our, our goal this year. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. You're dismissed.